You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. The brave souls who ventured out in negative five or 10, whatever degree weather, well done, well done. We're glad to have you here. Welcome to Kingsway. I assume we've got more people watching at home online than we normally do. And uh, last service, I said the same thing, and my phone is kind of blowing up with texts like, yes, and emails. We were, we were there, we were there, we're watching online. So welcome everybody at home too. It's really cold outside, but in here, it's crazy warm. So we wish you were here. All right. We are going to be in the book of Luke as we've been walking through for the last year. So if you're visiting with us on this cold day, um, we're going to be picking up in the middle of the book. But before we get to that today, I thought I'd set this with this question. You ready? Do you know why you are here? I don't mean Kingsway Christian Church today on this morning. I mean like on this earth. Do you know why you're here? When you were a young boy or girl, your parents would ask you all the time, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? As if a five-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old has any clue what they want to do with the rest of their life. High school students, right? Like as if you have any clue yet what you're going to do with the rest of your life. But you start latching on to things, right? I remember when I was a young boy, I thought, I'm going to be a scientist because my grandmother got cancer. And I was like, I'm going to figure out how to stop cancer. Then by the fourth grade, I got my first C ever in, in, in science. And I thought, maybe I should consider a different path for my life, Right. But this is kind of how it goes. There's this discovery process. Yesterday, we had our elder retreat. We do this kick off the year every year with like a, a, a retreat with our elders. And I brought in a gentleman named Matt Brown from the Blessing Ranch Ministry. They, have, they are like a pastor, pastor, a counselor, counselors. And Matt did a great job of walking our elders through a number of exercises, questions to kind of help us walk in our faith and get closer to Jesus in life. Now, as Matt and I were sitting there talking, waiting for things to kick off, he told a story about how he was at a church and... Um, he was, <clears throat> felt like God called him to leave that church and go plant another church. And so he had just told his leadership, and then right as that was about to happen, the, the lead pastor, the senior minister, whatever, at that church came down with lung cancer, never smoked a day in his life, and he died fairly shortly after that. And so Matt decided that God was calling him to stay. He couldn't leave the church in that situation, and he stayed until, and he led the church a while until they went and hired a guy that some of you would know because he used to serve at Northview, a guy named Josh Finkley. And um, Josh came to the church, and the church just started, like, blowing up. Like, it just grew really fast. They planted other churches, had multi-site campuses, and it just grew crazy. And, and this original kind of vision that he was executing for the church was suddenly gone. But it left Matt, even though Matt was like, super excited, totally believes in everything the church was doing, it left him wrestling with, like, who am I? Like, I wasn't the guy to do that. So why am I here and I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that, but here's what goes through most of us, right? As we get later into our teen years, when I was a young man, people would say, you need to go to college, right? And if you didn't go to college, you were either going to a trade school or college. You were either going to become some professional tradesman or you were going to become this college graduate. And so it was like you had to know by the time you were 18 what you were going to do. Well, when I was a student pastor a couple years ago, uh, there was a statistic that between 65 and 80% of people go into a field other than the one that their degree is in. I don't know what that number is today, but I'm going to guess it's that high or higher. So we had all these high school students coming out of high school, going into college, having no idea what they're supposed to do with the rest of their life. So they think they're going to do this. They end up over here because what happened is you got out there and went, well, I don't enjoy doing this at all. Um, or this person was my mentor and they're really good at it. I'm not, but you know what? I was really good at this. And as God has led you, you ended up in a different field or a different thing. And that's totally fine. But here's the bigger question. Why are you there? I think Luke 10 today is gonna to give us one of the key answers. Now, I have to tell you, um, 
I hope you brought your thinking cap. I'm just kidding. Uh, I really do hope you came prepared because um, in order to make Luke 10 make sense to you, I've got to do a deep dive into Bible. Now, I kind of figure anybody coming on a negative five, negative 10 degree weather days are those who are hungry for the Bible. So um, welcome to Kingsway. We're super glad you're here today. Any questions you have, I'm being serious. Feel free to email Brett Cadwell, B. Cadwell. He's on a sabbatical. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm serious. If you need resources, you want me to point you to more content because I've put in well over 100 hours into today's topic, not just today's message, but this topic, and it, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. So I'm giving you the overview, and you're going to have questions. So here we go, Luke chapter 10, verse 1. You ready? After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Okay. Lots of things happening here, but for, for like speed's sake, so I can get to the other stuff. Notice, first of all, that in chapter 9, which came right before chapter 10, Jesus sent out 12. And when he sent out the 12, their primary mission was to go to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were also paired up in two. And the reason that's important is a couple things. Number one, uh, there's accountability and comfort in sending two out, right? They're never alone, so at least there's a principle in there. You should never be alone either. That's why we have groups here at Kingsway, right? I don't mean never be alone. I mean, you're going to go to the bathroom at some point. I mean, you should always do life in community with other people. But more importantly, there's that encouragement factor. In the Old Testament, it was required in order to testify about something at court, you had to have two or three witnesses. You could not accept the testimony of only one person. So Jesus sends them out in twos in order to encourage each other and comfort each other. And so when one of them is saying, I saw Jesus do this, the other person could say, I saw it too, and it had validity to it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Now he's sending them out into the greater world. It's not just Israel. He's going to everywhere. And how many people did he send out? 72. Or did he? The King James Version reads like this. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also. And he sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. I think that's a word we need to use more often. Whither I would get to the point. Okay, so why does the NIV say 72 and the King James say 70? And the simple answer is, I knew it all along. This is why you can't trust those new modern translations. They're just trying to twist the words of everything. That's why some of you came from King James-only churches. That's the way it should have been. That was God's word a couple hundred years ago. That is not why. Here is where I want to take us to the deep end for just a moment. And some of you are going to eat this up, and some of you are going to be lost. I got a text from a close person I love very much, and it's like, I need to listen to your second service because I think I missed it first service. Okay, welcome. We're glad you're back again. Here we go. Ready? So we have more manuscripts and copies of manuscripts of the New Testament than any document in classical history. Any document, and it's not even close. Not even close. Just to give you an idea of the New Testament text, we have roughly 5,600, 5,800, I can't remember, uh, Greek texts. We have like 9,800 Latin versions, and we have roughly 10,000 other languages. So for a grand total of around 24,000, that number is constantly going up and down because there are fakes being produced on a regular basis because they're, they're like gold on the black market, right? So 
People make more, we find out that one's not legit, we take it off the number, we find new ones, we add it to the number, it's constantly moving up and down, but it's always gonna stay right around that 24,000 range. That's the New Testament only. There's still tens of thousands of Old Testament portions of full copies of text. Just to give you an idea, the next closest historical document would be Homer's Iliad. You read that one or heard about that? There were at one point 650 copies of that Um, Today, they can range up to 1,000, but there are so many fakes, we're not exactly sure what the number is. So even if we call it 1,000, you can see there is literally no comparison. That is the second most. Some of Plato's writings, we have like four and 10 and 12 copies, and, and it's the closest copy that we have is from within 400 years after Plato's life, and nobody questions whether Plato wrote a word of it. Now, in those 24,000 partial and full texts that we have, there was an original. Luke wrote an original letter. And what would happen is after he wrote that first letter, somebody copied it and put it over here and another one and another one. And people started copying off copies in the whole nine yards. What we have is we actually have thousands and thousands and thousands of discrepancies between those copies. And this makes some people, if you go on YouTube, you'll find lots of videos about this. So this is why you can't trust the Bible because it's all made up. It's just some thing that their religious leaders made up. Well, if they made it up, they did a really poor job of making sure, first of all, that everything said the same. But the second thing that's interesting to note is 99% of the differences between them are simple copyist errors, and everybody sees it. Every scholar, Christian atheist, acknowledges it. Things like um, adding an extra letter to the spelling of a word or leaving a letter out, which in some language could actually change the word and what it means originally anyway. Like, oops, they didn't copy a, a letter in there and that made it say air instead of earth. And it changed the entire meaning of the text. But we have all these other thousands to know that person copied it wrong. In some versions, we have things just simply spelled different. It'd be like adding E to the end of point. You know, like connection points. Like maybe if you're from Europe, you would spell it that way. But here in the United States where autocorrect fixes everything the wrong way, we know there's no E on the end of point. I'm teasing a sister church for those of you who don't know. But you get the idea. So we get that in the text all the time. Or maybe you spell word finish and you put in two ends versus one end. You get it. It's not hard. 99% of the differences are that. Big deal. It just shows that they were human, they were distracted, they were busy like the rest of us. That's all that it means. It doesn't mean anything. That other 1% is that we have to talk about it, wrestle with it, and say, what really is going on here? Now, what's really going on here is I have to explain something else to you before I can make sense of that discrepancy for you that makes sense of the rest of the text. It makes the whole text come alive and why there's a discrepancy, all right? Here we go. So in the Bible, there are three falls, three falls. We often talk about the first one. Let's cover that one quickly. So in the very beginning, God made Adam, and from Adam, all peoples were made. He then made Eve, and together, the two of them became one flesh and started to be fruitful and multiply. Before that fruitful multiply occurred, God placed them in a garden, and he gave them two trees. The tree of life, eat of it, joy it, live forever, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it, it's bad. The Hasatan, the Satan, shows up in the story and he tempts Eve first and then Eve tempts Adam and they both eat of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat of. And this is the first fall. And it lets us know 
See, in the garden, there was heaven and there was earth, and the two were united as one. The garden was a place where God would come down, it says, in the cool of the day, and he would walk, and there was this unity between heaven and earth. God loves to create. He's a creator God, and he loves to create for a purpose, and he loves to give certain people different gifts and experiences. Man, I walk into a room with my wife, and she comes alive when there are little kids in the room, and they gravitate towards her. It's like they, they have this radar, and they just know that she's awesome with them. They do not even look at me. Like they know that I'm a hobbit and they don't want anything to do with me. They're like, you're our hype, but you're not our people. And they run, they run. I'm glad some of you are still with me. Okay. They run right to her. There's something about the way that God made my wife. It's just who she is in the world. And he did that with angelic beings and he did that with earthly beings, but it fell apart. That's the first fall. The second fall shows up a few chapters later in something called the flood. I talked about this in our Genesis series. I don't have time to go any further, but part of what's happening in that text is now some of these spiritual beings have fallen away from heavenly God, the Father, and they've rebelled against him. They've created a rebellion on earth. So God says, I'm gonna flood the earth. I'm gonna wipe all evil off the earth, and I'm gonna start over with one man, Noah, and his family, So by the end of chapter nine, we're told that God's gonna repopulate the earth through Noah and his family. And then chapter 10 tells us about him and his sons. It's looking back at history and telling us something that took years and years and years to unfold. In chapter 11, we get to the third rebellion and it's called Babel. At Babel, what happens is all of Noah's family, they all spoke the same language and a bunch of them came together and said, you know what? We wanna do things our way, just like we did in the fall in Genesis 3, just like we did in Genesis 6 in the flood. We wanna do things our way. Why don't we build a a temple, a ziggurat, and we'll go up to the heavens so that we can do what we wanna do. And God comes down, he's like, well, this is a problem. When these people are all on the same page, speaking the same language, They are unified against us, and that's not my plan for them. So God disperses them, separates the languages. Now, when you look at 9, 10, and 11, in Genesis chapter 10, here's what you'll see. The Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament text lists 70 nations in Genesis 10. The Greek Old Testament text called the LXX lists 72 nations. Sound familiar? So what's happening is whichever one was the first one in Luke chapter 10, when Luke said Jesus sent them out, 70 of them or 72 of them, we don't know which one was first. One of those copyists, one of those scholars later came along and was copying Luke's book and he went, oh, I see what's going on here. I get what's happening in the text. Jesus is reclaiming the nations for himself. And so he copied the number. He's like, well, we use the Greek Bible or we use the Hebrew Bible. And so he writes the number down. He's like, I'll bet Luke meant this number. And he changed it. But what does it ultimately change? Nothing. Because the point is the same. Now, something else I have to say for the rest of Luke 10 to make sense. We haven't even got to Luke 10 yet. This is gonna be a long sermon. Actually, it's not. We'll get there fairly quickly, I promise. But I have to lay one more foundation. This is a biblical worldview. I want to give you a view of what God says is going on in the world, not what Fox News or CNN or whatever your favorite news choice thing is, okay? This is what God's word says is going on in the world. 
This is what's called a Deuteronomy 32 worldview. In Deuteronomy 32, we're looking back at the history of Israel, and God is giving us insight into the way that he has designed the world and why he's done it. Let's take a look real quick at Deuteronomy 32. It says this, remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father, and he will tell you. Your elders, they will explain it to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he, the Most High, divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now stop there for a second. This phrase here, this is another one of those, the Hebrew says one, the Greek says another. The Greek says, according to the sons of God. Whenever you see the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament, it points to angelic or spiritual beings. And here's, we don't know which one is implied. And I think that's because there's an intentional tension in the text. Here's what's happening. You're like, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Pastor. Here's my summary. So if you've tuned out, this is the perfect moment to tune back in. You ready? Here we go. God created one man. And from that man, he intended to fill the earth with his glory. Okay? That man rebelled, and so did his wife, and so did every generation since. Eventually, God sent a flood to wipe everything off the earth, and then the nation still unified against God, and instead of destroying them and quitting on them, he separated them into their different nations and languages. Now, what's happened historically is God disinherited the nations. He said, you guys do not want me, just like Romans 1 said, then have it. Have it and have everything that comes with it. If you want me, you get me and everything that comes with me. If you don't want me, you can have your sin and whatever else you want. And it says in Romans 1, God handed them over, handed them over to their flesh. So what happened is God disinherited the entire world and that was both physical and spiritual because now Satan has his playground here on earth and he is active among the nations doing evil, creating pain and traumas of unbelievable scale. But then, notice the rest of Deuteronomy 32. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted inheritance. See, in spite of whatever you read on the news, when God created Israel, when he created them, his goal was that they would be the center point where the Messiah would come, and then through them, Messiah would take the good news of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth, that is the end game. It wasn't to build a nation. Do not read into anything I'm saying. Feel free to send me those emails too. That's fine. But this is a hot button topic that you have to get. He was not intending to create a nation. He was intending to create a people group whereby the Messiah would come and would be a blessing to all nations. It's not to say Israel isn't a nation. I'm not even trying to comment on what's happening over there right now. I'm just trying to say that the church needs to have a view of the world that God has of the world. The goal is the kingdom of God going to the end of the world. Israel was through whom the Messiah would come, and then from there, it would be base camp. From there, he would win back the world to himself from every people and tribe and nation and language and tongue. Sound familiar? Now, Paul gets this, and he builds on this in Acts chapter 17. You're like, we're not even in Luke 10 yet? I know. Stick with me. In Acts 17, it says this. Paul is standing up in front of a, in front of a city. He's proclaiming the gospel. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Again, this may not make sense to you, but remember in ancient days and even still in much of the world today, people have temples and in those temples are idols. And the hope is that those idols will do something for me. So people bring them food and they make sacrifices. Throughout history, people have sacrificed their babies to these idols in order to have what they wanted in life. And Paul says, God doesn't need you to do anything for him. Like that's not, he's a powerful God. He built Adam, he built the world. He's been in control for a long time, guys. He's got this. Then he goes on, he says, rather than needing anything from you, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, one man, Adam, he made all the nations. You could say he redid it again in Noah. Paul is taking these three stories and smashing them into one that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, God, marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. This is powerful stuff. What Paul is trying to lay a foundation in just a short paragraph is to say, you don't live where you live on accident. You ever feel guilty for being born in America instead of, say, somewhere else? It was not on accident. God set the appointed times and places for you. But that ought to bring up a great question, why? Why am I here? God answers that question, or Paul answers it. God did this so that they, you, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have even said, Paul says, we are his offspring. That'll be the moment everybody goes, amen, right? Did you realize that God has created you and fashioned you? He has determined the time and the place set for you, but why? So that you would find him and reach out for him and find that he was right there all along, that there was never a moment in your life that he wasn't tuned into and paying attention to. It's not an accident. That doesn't mean he caused every evil thing that happened in your life. It just means that he has always been near. Come back to Luke 10 now. See, that was just the intro. Luke 10, verse 2. So Jesus told, told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Whose harvest field is it? It's the Father's. God handed the nations over to Satan, sin, and death. But he didn't leave them there. He went and said, these are mine and I will bring them back to myself now. So go, go. Who go? You go. What do you mean? You mean go to Israel, right? No, no, no. I mean go to every nation and tribe and tongue and nation. That's a good word. I was making up things. Language, nation. Go to them all. Go to them. Tell them. Because I'm bringing you back to my, we need more. We need more workers in the field. Well, who's gonna go? Well, why don't you talk to God? It's his field. Because he loves his field more than you love your field. Trust me. He loves your children more than you love your children. And if that is hard to believe, it's true. He loves your parents. He loves your neighbors. He even loves your enemies more than you could fathom. That's why he needs us to go. And Jesus really wants you to see yourself as sent by him into your everyday life. 
Your kids aren't just playing soccer. They're in a field that needs harvested. You're not just teaching a room full of students. It's a field that needs harvested. You don't just manage a team of people who are trying to feed their families. It's a field that needs harvested. Whether you work for the government or you're a plumber or an accountant, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do to pay your bills, God bless you. He made you to be good at different things in the world. Praise him for his creativity. But he put you in the world for a reason, to be a worker in his fields. So go be the best lover, encourager, challenger, truth speaker the world has ever known right where you are. And if you think that sounds terrifying, but pastor, you don't understand. You, you get to speak to a bunch of people who want to hear what you have to say. Like, I get it. Well, most of the time they do. Yeah, I get it. If I were to speak the truth about my faith, I could lose my job. I could lose my promotion. I might even lose a friend or a family member. I could get made fun of or mocked. This isn't sarcasm, I promise. But do you think you're the first generation to wrestle with this? And Jesus told these disciples, go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. What? If you were here when we talked about chapter nine, when he sent out the 12, it's the same thing. There's an urgency to this. Don't go home and prepare for this. What happens after a message like this, people spend a couple weeks thinking about it. Like, no, 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 just do it. Just go. And you think to yourself, I, I don't know if I know enough. I don't know if I'm smart enough. I don't know if I have enough. I don't know if I'm bold enough. Like, wait, wait, wait. This is God going. You're starting to sound a lot like Moses. But, but I don't understand. No, 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 good. Like, and God's going, wait, 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 Moses, Moses. I have seen. I have heard. I have come down. Now go. And Moses is trying to argue, but I can't go because I'm not good enough. God's going, which part of this did you miss? I'm going. I'm just going through you. I will be with you to the very end of the age. I am the one. There's an urgency to this. And we put it off hoping maybe one day God will create the perfect moment for everything to occur. And we miss opportunities waiting for moments. And Jesus tells them, we have to do one, two, skip a few for time's sake. In verse 16, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Oh, and this is huge. Okay, you got to get this one, okay? Well, basically what Jesus just said, I'm sending you out to the nations. It's going to be dangerous out there. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. I'm sending you out innocent. What happens to a lamb when a wolf shows up? But I'm sending you out. But I know I'm sending you out. Right? It's not an accident. But I'm sending you out. Now listen, those who won't listen to you, they're rejecting you. But if they reject you, do you know who they're really rejecting? They're rejecting me. So don't take it personal. Here's the danger. When they reject me, they're actually rejecting the one who sent me. Well, who sent the son? The father. Jesus is making crystal clear. He's drawing a line in the sand. There is no other option. I'm the only option. There is no plan B. Buddha can't save them. Muhammad doesn't have the power. There's no other prophet or religion or good work. See, too many Christians in America, they go, but they're a really nice person. And I bet they are. Like of, of everybody in the world, they're probably the nicest person you've ever met. Or you just like them a lot and you want to ignore all their blind spots. I get it. I get it. 
But there is no way to God the Father except through the Son. Jesus doesn't say, if they reject you, they reject me. But don't worry about it. There's a lot of religions in the world. They'll find their way. He says, no, there's an urgency to this. It's me or it's nothing. It's me or they're lost. What is on the line is eternity. How does that look compared to all those other things I'm afraid of? So they go out. The 70 or the 72, right? Verse 17, the 72 go out and they returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Like, how cool is that? Like, I know a couple card tricks. If you want to be impressed, this is way better. Come on. <laughs> so get this. In the early part of Luke, Jesus cast out demons. People were like, oh, even the demons believe? Like, listen to him. Then he sends out the nine, or sorry, the 12 of chapter nine. And they come back and they go, Jesus, even the demons listen to us. He's like, I know. Now he sends out everybody else. And he goes, now everybody gets this power and this authority. See, if you don't have a Genesis 10, Deuteronomy 32 worldview, then this makes no sense to you. The nations are run by the evil forces of the world. Ours is no different. There are so many dysfunctional evil forces at work in various places of power around the world. Do you ever read the news, watch the news, and think, I don't know which side I'm supposed to line up with. They all seem like bad choices. There is an evil presence at work in this world, and that could terrify you, or you could trust your heavenly father. Jesus celebrates with them. His response, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Oh, if I had another hour. <laughs> Feel free to send me an email. I'll shoot you some great links and some great resources, but I gotta tell you, this is not for the faint of heart. This has probably taken me 10 years, hundreds of hours of prep to wrap my head around. So if you want that deep dive, let me know. If you don't, then here's my thoughts, okay? God ruled earth from heaven. And in the same way he equipped us with a variety of gifts and skill sets and callings and responsibilities, he did the same thing in the heavenly realms. And when the first fall, the second fall, and the third fall occurred, heaven and earth broke and fell apart. What Jesus is doing, he's not just coming to save you, that's true. He's coming to reunite heaven and earth. This is exactly how the book of Revelation ends. When we see the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven, perfectly dressed and adorned for her groom, the bride is the church, and heaven and earth are gonna be one again. And there'll be no more sun, just like in Genesis chapter one, because God will be the sun, and there'll be no gates on the doors, because evil will be removed, and now heaven and earth will be united again. This is why Paul says, don't you know one day you're going to judge angelic spirits? Don't you know that you're going to do that one day? You, why? Because when heaven and earth are united again, and Jesus returns again, you will be given authority to judge the, the nations that are being run by these spirits in many ways. And I know you're like, this, I thought this church was normal until this sermon right now. <laughs> I'm only telling you what the Bible says. Go to the book of Job. God has a courtroom. And apparently the Hasatan, who we call Satan, is allowed to show up and he's allowed to throw accusations. Now Jesus is saying he can't stand any longer. I saw Satan fall like lightning. When he shows up in the courtroom of God, it says, I know what he did. I know what she does. Now God looks at him and says, but that one is mine. That one is claimed by the blood of the lamb. 
That's a weak clap. We're not sure yet. And that's why in Revelation, it says we will overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Because when we stand secure in what Jesus has done for us, now I have his authority in me and I'm able to go and do what God has called me to do without fear or anxiety because my name is written in heaven. That's why in Luke 10, 19, Jesus says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. He doesn't mean go out to Arizona on vacation and take your sandals off. <laughs> snakes and scorpions is a literal reference to demonic spirits. I have given you authority to trample on them and their work. They can't thwart you. They can't stop you. They can't hurt you because my name is over you. And to overcome all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. Wait, wait nothing? Wait a minute, Pastor, I've read church history. Most of the early Christians died. They were killed and tore apart. Some of them in coliseums from hungry animals or, or evil men. They were, what do you mean nothing will harm you? Well, put it in context. In context, he's saying no weapon formed against you. Sound like any other passage you've ever heard of. We'll stand. When the enemy tries to form some sort of accusation, some sort of attack, some sort of spiritual something against you, his best schemes cannot win against you because you have a leader over your heart, over your life, and his name is Jesus Christ. He will not fail you. That doesn't mean you can't lose your job. That doesn't mean you won't lose a friend. It doesn't mean it won't hurt or be embarrassing. It only means that there's nothing the enemy throws at you that can ultimately touch you because your name is written in heaven, which is why he goes on. He says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's a humility required with this. And there's an arrogance in America related to spiritual forces where a lot of us just go around yelling and screaming at demons like, look, well, they got to listen because I yelled really loud. We see this in movies and in books all the time and videos on YouTube or whatnot. Like there's a humility to this. The enemy has to listen, but not because you're amazing or figured out the perfect words. It's because Jesus and his authority is in you. So go reclaim what is God's. Be a worker in his field. Go do what needs to be done, but don't let fear run you. And when you're tempted not to believe, as I sometimes am, when the fear of what is in front of you, perhaps the fear of not knowing enough or what might happen or what you might lose. Just remember this. Acts 17, God did all of this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any. Jesus is near your friends, your coworkers, your neighbor, your family. He's near them. He's been near them from day one. He's been orchestrating events in their life to try to reveal himself to them. A lot of times it takes that last conversation, that last nudge from a friend. 
reaching out and being bold enough to say, do you know him? I want you to know him, actually know him. This is so powerful for Paul. The whole book of Philippians comes because Paul is in a city and he looks at the buddies traveling with him and he says, hey, let's just go down to the river and see what God's up to. And he starts a conversation with a woman named Lydia who accepts Jesus and invites Paul in, into her home with his companions and the church is birthed. The church of Philippians is birthed right there. All because Paul said, I know God's up to stuff in the world. Let's go see if we can find something he's up to and join him. Church, do you believe God is up to stuff in the world? If so, what's he up to? What would it look like for you to be bold enough to partner with him and just find out and see what part you could play? When you're tempted to doubt, remember this. Jesus is better at saving than we are at sinning. That came up yesterday at our elders retreat. I wrote that down in my journal with tears pouring down my face because sometimes I'm tempted to forget, but I need to remember this one. Because I need to remember I can't save anybody. My name isn't Jesus. I can't fix anybody. I can't heal anybody. I can't answer everybody's questions. The only thing that I can do is bring Jesus to people and people to Jesus over and over and over again and say, look, I don't have it all figured out, but I sure love him and he's been good to me. So when you're tempted to question his faithfulness, remember Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. You are dearly loved and protected by your Father in heaven. Go, go, go do your job filled with God's spirit, bringing God's kingdom into the world, go. But please, please don't be another Christian in this country who plays it safe. Here's what I wanna do. We're gonna sing a song as a church and I just want you to sing it as the Lord leads it. If you need time to either sit or stand in his presence, you do that. The rest of us are gonna stand and sing. So why don't we all stand right now? I'll say a prayer and then we'll sing. Oh my God. We need you. We need you every hour. Lord, uh, sometimes we are tempted to miss the real battle going on in the hearts and the lives and the minds of people around us, even ourselves. But God, the enemy has no claim on me. He has no claim. I am yours. God, may every believer in this room and their heart say this right now. I am yours. I'm yours, I'm your son, I'm your daughter. I belong to you. You are my God, you are my savior, you are my Lord. So no weapon formed against me could even prosper. So Father, I go forward in faith knowing you are with me, you are in me, but help me. Help me be bold in places I wanna shrink back. Help me be strong in places I feel weak. Help me be wise in places I feel uneducated. But God, in all things, help me to go to go, to not listen to what I am told I have to do by anybody whose name isn't Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.